You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. From John 3:22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into, into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Enon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for the last couple months, you know that we've been studying the gospel of John. We've been going... Um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the fourth gospel account that we have uh, in our Bibles. And as I began my study of of the gospel of John, I I talked to a bunch of different pastors who had preached through it before, different commentators. They all kind of had the same sort of warning up front that as you work your way through the gospel of John, you might notice things start to get a little bit repetitive. Um, themes keep coming back up, um, and, and that's certainly the case today, that, that actually our passage that we're sitting in, every single one of these themes has already been presented today. Now, the reason for this, the reason why there's such repetition in John's gospel is because he has a singular focus. He's really aiming for one thing. He wants you to know, to see with the eyes of faith who Jesus is, to believe in him and have life everlasting. That's his one thing. And so he keeps going over and over and over, blazing a path and then retraveling over those trails so that we would help to see who Jesus is. Now, what I want to do today 
um, rather than rehashing some of the themes that we've already, and we could certainly go back and dive in, and there's still a lot more to extract, but I want to do something a little bit different uh, to help keep things interesting for us, and not just interesting, but really work in some of the practicalities of what this text is about. Good theology is always practical. Good theology works its way out into everyday normal life, and so I want to take this approach uh, with us today. Now, in order to do this, what I'm going to do, first, I want you to, right now, everybody, everybody grab a pew Bible or your Bible, open up the Bible. Uh, I want you to open up to John chapter 3, and I think the Pew Bibles, I did some research, page 763 today. Okay, you're going to put one finger there, and then you're going to flip a little bit further to page 837, uh, which is going to land you in Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at John chapter 3 through the lens of Ephesians chapter 4, which talks about this, this term, this phrase, this idea that's called the priesthood of all believers. Let, let me just introduce you to this passage here uh, and read Ephesians chapter 4. I'm looking at verses 11 through 16. And he, that's God or, or Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, listen up, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So he gave the elders, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we, listen to this, so that we may no longer be children that is spiritually immature, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together, uh, uh, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working property, properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this, this passage in Ephesians chapter four is what the Apostle Paul, or I guess the Apostle Paul is presenting this to us and, and saying that all Christians have been called into ministry. Now, that, I, I wanna work through some of this, but, but in order to, as we flip back and forth between John 3 and Ephesians 4, in order for this sermon to actually make sense, you have to start by understanding this first key, the first point of, of what I wanna pack. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, and today I wanna extract six keys, six points, from his ministry to help us as we are gospel ministers here in the Quad Cities. So the, in order for this sermon to make sense, you, uh, for you and have practical implications, you must arrive at this first point with me, which is to realize, Christian, you have been called by God into gospel ministry. I am not the only minister of the gospel here. Pastors AJ and Pastor Jesse are not the only gospel ministers in this room. If you have the spirit of God in you, you have been called into the ministry of reconciliation. You've been called into gospel ministry. Now, we see John's call comes directly from God. If you go back to the beginning, I'm talking about John the Baptist here. It's very confusing talking about John the evangelist who's writing the gospel of John and John the Baptist who, who's 
performing stuff and doing stuff. He's, he's kind of the main guy. He's actually the one that's, that's speaking. We're getting to look into his thoughts at this moment. Um, we see that John the Baptist was, listen to this, he was, verse 6 of chapter 1 says that he was sent by God. So God commissioned him to bear witness to the Christ. And then in verse 27 of John chapter 4, we see it again. In this remark, and, and this is kind of a, uh, sometimes you, as you're reading this, maybe your first impression, so I, I don't know exactly what he's talking about. In verse 27, he says, um, I've got to find it. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Now, this applies to everything. Like, he can't even accept one thing. But, but the thing that John the Baptist is talking about right now is his ministry. That he, he's saying that you can't accept anything. And he's talking about his ministry. It's been given to me from heaven, from God. This is my lot. This is my appointment. This is my commission. And in the same way, Christian, you have been given a task from heaven. In Matthew 28, as Jesus delivers the great commission to his disciples, that not just only applies to those 12 that are there, but goes through all the ages, through all the generations, throughout the church, that says, go therefore, actually it starts like this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority. Jesus speaking right now authoritatively as the one who is, will be, eventually as he ascends, will be seated at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So here, and he keeps on going, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Christian, you have been assigned a task from heaven in the Great Commission to go and make disciples. That is a calling on your life. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, you've heard God's call through the gospel, you are also simultaneously called into gospel ministry. Now, this does not mean that you need to go post up on a river like John the Baptist does. In fact, Jesus, even, we see this. John the Baptist is downstream, Jesus is upstream. They're hanging out on the riverbanks. Um, they've got their ministry. They've, they've been called to a ministry. Now, for you to be called into ministry doesn't mean that you need to go hang out down by the Mississippi all the time. You might, but doesn't necessarily mean that. But it, what, what it does mean, as you've been given this great commission to go and make disciples, it means that now you have a concern, not only for your own discipleship and taking responsibility for yourself, your own spiritual development and growth, your own spiritual maturity, but also for the discipleship of other people as well. You see this in Ephesians 4 when, when uh, the apostle Paul he says that, that we've been given this work, the, the, the saints have been um, equipped for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. And so this means, if, if you're a Christian, you've been called to work into, in, in building up the body of Christ, the church. Part of your ministry is seen to and contributing to the development, the growth, the maturity of Christ's church. And, and this work starts first in your own home. Tending to your children, discipling your children, teaching them the ways of the Lord that they may not depart from them. And as Christians are called into gospel ministry to edify, to work uh, towards the building up of the church, there's also not only this internal focus on caring for the people who are already here, there's, there's this also um, what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation. 
of, of this missional focus. So it's not just we're focused on, on the good of the people in the room. We actually want to be missionaries to the culture, to our city, and to, to proclaim the gospel of Christ to those who have not yet heard. And so this work of the ministry is twofold in, in building up the church and evangelizing to the world. Now, one thing that we say here often uh, is that the only way to make disciples is the way that Jesus made disciples. Jesus didn't set up teaching workshops or conferences. Um, Jesus didn't have like, you know, Sunday school hour where you come here and, and you just cram it all in for that one hour a week and then that's that. The way that Jesus made disciples was in community and on mission. Living life in proximity with other people who are moving toward the same telos, the same goal. And as we're moving together, we're moving to advance the gospel through proclamation. So the only way to be to really live out this great commission of going to make disciples is to do it in the context of gospel community and a gospel community that's on mission. Now, when I say this, and this has been really the anthem of our church since day one, um, not because we thought of it, it's, it's in scripture, so we, we can't take the credit for that. But often when we talk about making disciples or talking about discipleship and mission, a lot of evangelical people or just general people um, look at this work and say, man, I don't know if I've got time for that. My schedule's already loaded. I got so much going on. I've got a busy life. How will I ever be able to squeeze all of this stuff in? Now, I will say, if, if you have if you are converted, like if you go through this radical transformation, the way that Jesus talked about it to Nicodemus of being born again, your life is going to have a new trajectory. Your life is going to have new rhythms. Your life is going to have new patterns that you're gonna find yourself in. One of them will be gathering with the saints on Sunday mornings. That's just gonna be one of the things. We honor the Sabbath. So there is a sense that as you come to Christ, as, as you put your faith in Jesus, there are certain things about your life that will change as far as your schedule goes. But there are even more so are, are things that you will keep doing, but now you will do them differently. So one of the things that's helpful to notice here as we're talking about people being called into gospel ministry is realizing that there is a difference between um, discipleship and mission as a task that we've got to add onto our schedule and discipleship and mission as a way of life. There's a difference between the two. If discipleship and mission is a task that has to be added on to our already busy, busy schedule, it is gonna feel burdensome. It is gonna feel like my schedule gets jam-packed and I don't know how I'm gonna cram it all in. But if discipleship and mission is a way of life, then that gets superimposed over the top of everything you're already doing. If discipleship and mission is a task, if it's an add-on, um, not only will it feel like extra, but oftentimes what will happen is that you, you'll just feel so overwhelmed that you may not even do it. And a lot of times people are surprised that, that even with their inconsistency and, and these rhythms and patterns and, and this way of life is, is they try to do it once or twice or they try it, you know, go for a streak for a month or whatever and, and they find that they're really not that good at it. And it's because... 
they're not doing it often. It's because nobody's just naturally good at discipleship. Nobody's just naturally good at, actually, that's not always true. Some people are given the gift of evangelism. And so there are some people that are gifted and inclined, but, but the general population, this is something that the church grows and matures and, and develops. So if, if discipleship and mission is an add-on and you're not doing it consistently, it shouldn't be a surprise to you when you're not stellar at it. But if discipleship and mission is a way of life, then, then you get to do it while you're doing the stuff that you're already doing. It's something that's always going on in the background. It's always humming along there. It's always something that, that's on your radars. I have been sent here by God as a minister of reconciliation to bear witness to Jesus. And so this means that your normal everyday rhythms now gain a whole new um, depth and breadth and weight of significance because now you're going to the gym, now you're going to work, now you're mowing your lawn, now you're going to the park, now you're going to the library, now you're going to the coffee shop, now you're going to the grocery store with gospel intentionality. Now you're going there as a minister of the gospel. You are in this identity as a servant of Christ. And the good news about this is the more that you do it, the better you get at it. The, the more that you have this intentionality. I, this is what it might look like. And get into some practicalities here. You're about ready to go into the grocery store. Now, if you're just on the autopilot, you hop out, you grab your Aldi quarter, get your cart, you just kind of put your head down and try to not make eye contact with people. Let's be honest, Okay. But if you're going to the grocery store with gospel intentionality, I might suggest it might look like this. Before you even get out of your car, say, Lord, would you please give me an opportunity to, to bear witness to Christ, whether it's in my speech or in my actions today? Would you give me an opportunity to share with somebody? Or maybe you bring somebody along with you and you get some discipleship time. You both got to go grocery shopping anyway. Why not go with a friend? Why not go with somebody from your MC? And then you go into that space and you intentionally uh, reckon with the, the fact that you are sent by God to that Aldi in that moment. For such a time as this, God has sent you to Aldi. <laughs> that, that is one of the things that, that everyday gospel intentionally works with. For me, this, this, is, uh, this takes place in the gym. I, I, I work out with a bunch of heathens. I love them to death. Um, a lot of them don't know Jesus. And I go there, and I'm not just there to, to sweat and, and get my blood flowing and get whatever the benefits healthy-wise or mentality-wise that is from working out. I'm there to witness to Christ. And so this is what everyday gospel intentionality uh, ministry looks like. Now, let me ask you, Christian, are you, is this the way that you view your life, your daily routines and rhythms? Are you moving into those things with gospel intentionality, asking for God to use you for his purposes? If not, there's no better time to start than now. There's no better time to start than now. Start simple. And actually, I, we could, I could teach a whole class on what this might look like, but this is probably a great conversation to have with your missional community. Hey, what's it look like for you? And get ideas and bring it. And then actually prayerfully and faithfully work through those things because you are called by God to be a minister of the gospel. Key number two from John's ministry. 
Gospel ministry is not about you. It's all about Jesus. Gospel ministry is not about you. It's all about Jesus. A common vice of modern people, of our society at large, um, it's, in fact, this is the reason why you now have um, self-facing cameras on your phone. Uh, we have an inflated sense of self-importance. If you want to get clinical about it, uh, we're narcissists. We have this tendency to view ourselves as the most important, to inflate our self-importance and to be obsessed. And then the way that we navigate through life is we think that my life, and we like capitalize my as my life is all about me. You buy into, I mean, Disney stories tell this. I'm not trying to hate on Disney stories. And even a lot of kids' stories tell this. Anyway, they, they, they present the idea to children that you are the star of your own story. And then we're surprised when kids start to think that the whole world sort of revolves around them. And when we have this sort of inflated self-importance, what we want to do is we want to recruit God to come and play a supporting role in my story. See, it's my story. I just need God to come in and, you know, sprinkle some of that blessing dust on me so I can get where I want to go. This is a dangerous lie a dangerous lie that our culture is biting into. See, we, we are not trying to get God to play a supporting role in our story. Listen up. You are playing a minute role in God's massive story. And the story is all about God. Now, while it is God's story, while it's God's story that has a mission, while it's a story about God's mission in the world to then um, give him all the glory, it is still a privilege for us to be part of the story. It's still a joy to play that no-named figure in the shadows, right? It's God's story. It's the glory of God's story, and we get to play a part in this. Now, what we see in John the Baptist here is that he knows that. He gets that. He knows his life, his ministry isn't about him, he knows the whole time as he's baptizing alongside of the Jordan River and he even says to his disciples in verse 28, he says, I've, bore, I've testified to this reality that I am not the Christ. It's not about me. I'm here to point to the Christ who is coming, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm just a side, side guy here. He knows he's auxiliary in God's story. Now, that's kind of crazy to say about John the Baptist because here we are 2,000 years later talking about this dude. Um, but in his mind, he knows he's auxiliary. And he's just delighted to be used by God in this capacity. He's okay with playing the supporting role. And this is made evident in this very popular line that we see in verse 30 where he says, he must, he's speaking of Jesus, he, Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. Now, the reason John the Baptist is talking about decreasing isn't because he's moping around feeling bad about himself. He, he's not like, woe is me. You know, I'm just like a, you know, a paper towel. You use me and toss me away and that's it. That's, you know, that's not at all his mentality. 
The reason why John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase, is because John the Baptist sees the glory and grandeur of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, he says this in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He's, he's in Colossians 1 language, he's preeminent. He's above all. He's over all things. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He's, he's contrasting here. I'm just a dude from the dirt. And Jesus is the, the son of God who comes from heaven. And again, he, he repeats, he who comes from heaven is above all. John the Baptist knows this whole thing, the point of his ministry isn't about him, it's about Jesus. And when we are living our lives with gospel intentionality, living out uh, our, our identity as ministers of the gospel, Understanding that it's all about Jesus is such a relief. Oh, freedom. Because you're not trying to show people how good of a person you are. You're not trying to prove like, okay, uh, he, the reason why you should follow Jesus is because I've managed to put my life together. Well, no, because you're still a bit of a mess, if we're honest. The reason why we, we bear witness to Jesus is because he can actually do something. He's the one who's come to bear the sins of the world upon himself. And so we point to Jesus, not to ourselves. Gospel ministry is all about Jesus. Number three. And I, I'm gonna, this is quite the feat. I don't know. There's six, baby. Each one of these could be its own sermon, but we're gonna keep going. Number three, number three, nothing, okay, listen, nothing undermines gospel ministry more than envy and bitterness. Nothing is more destructive, nothing is more antithetical to gospel ministry than envy and bitterness. In verse 26, we see John the Baptist guys. These, these are some of the OGs. These guys have been with John the Baptist even before Jesus showed up on the scene, hanging out by the banks of the river, baptizing people, talking about repentance. And John's going head to head with the Pharisees, the leading um, religious people of the day. They've been there for the long haul. They've, they've been bought into John's ministry. And what they see now is they look upstream and they see Jesus who's there. And Jesus isn't baptizing people, but he's there with his disciples and they're baptizing people in the same way that John was. And, and John the Baptist's disciples see that all of the people, like John the Baptist, um, his business is dried up largely. And everybody is going up the street to Jesus. Because after all, remember John said, hey, that's the one, that's the Lamb of, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so people are, are gravitating towards Jesus, which John, remember, He's okay with decreasing so Jesus can increase. But his disciples, you don't, you don't seem to get the impression that they share the same outlook as John the Baptist. In bringing this to John's attention, you catch a whiff of envy. And it would be easy for these guys and John the Baptist to, to look up there to be envious and to get bitter about the whole situation. For John to say, man, God, after all I've done for you, I've been out here eating cockroaches and wearing camel hair clothes, looking like a weirdo, and this is how you repay. He could have done that. 
He could have got envious of Jesus' attention or bitter, even bitter towards Jesus that, that he's not getting any credit for what he's done before. And then in that, uh, the product of both envy and bitterness leads to resentfulness. Envy and bitterness converge in the same spot of resentfulness. Now, in gospel ministries, uh, there, there are many ways that we are tempted toward envy and bitterness. That there are many opportunities where, where we can become envious or bitter either towards God or towards other people. Um, it's not just seeing someone else do well in their ministry. I think this is, I've had to repent of this um, and this is something I think that we can get jealous of that if we're in a missional community and maybe we're going through a rough spot, Maybe we're not seeing the kind of gospel fruit that we hope to see in the transformation and the joy and the brotherhood that we hope to have in our missional communities. Instead, it's kind of a dry season. We could look across the city and see a missional community that's just crushing it. That they're MC, everybody seems to love each other and they're rallying together and they're making disciples and it's exciting and it's full of joy. And it would be easy for us to look and, and be envious. Say, man, why, do I, why did I get stuck in this stinking MC? These people are the worst. <laughs> you know what? I mean, if you've been an MC, just moment of honesty, you've probably been there at one point. But it's not just, and the same thing too, even with pastors. I've got a lot of church planting friends around the Midwest. And some of them, guys, are just crushing it. The Lord is blessing them like crazy. People coming, it's like baptisms every week, it seems like. I don't know, it's crazy. But it's easy to look over there and, and be jealous of what's going on. Like, why are we not? What, like, we got empty pews. Where is that? It's easy for that enviousness to stir up. But one of the things that we have to remember here is that God is at work in many ways through many people. And, it, and if it's legitimate gospel ministry that's happening, we ought to be able to celebrate it. John's sitting there thinking, man, I am so glad people are getting their way to Jesus. Why? Because through him, through that work, the kingdom of heaven is advancing. Now, it's not just in seeing someone else do well where envy and bitterness stir up. Envy and bitterness often arise in the midst of the nitty-gritty relational dynamics of gospel ministry. Remember earlier when I said the only way to make disciples is in community and on mission? Um, the, the people that you are in community with are also sinners just like you. And when you get sinners who live in close proximity with one another, um, this hopefully is not shocking, but people are gonna sin against you. You're gonna sin against other people. That, that's just going to happen. That's the nature of gospel ministry. And there are two ways. Um, well, one of the ways that this bitterness and envy can stir up, specifically bitterness and resent, resentfulness, is that if you do get sinned against, um, if somebody does sin against you, um, instead of dealing with that sin in a prompt and biblical way, meaning like we don't let things fester, we don't let things go unchecked for a long amount of time, we don't let things get swept under the rug and never address them. 
And biblical in the sense that God's word is the standard and using Matthew 18 as sort of the framework of how we address the sins of one another, we step into those conversations. Instead of doing that, what you do is you hold on to that hurt. You hold on to that. And and as you hold on to hurt, what happens is that person's sin starts to to swell and swell and swell and become so big, so massive in your eyes, and your sin suddenly becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. That your responsibility, it's easy to become the victim in this situation. And when you do that, you dwell on this. And as you dwell on the sins of others, rather than taking to the cross, letting a a love cover a multitude of sin, rather than going uh, to a brother like Matthew 18 tells us to do, what happens is bitterness and resentfulness starts to swell up and grow. And it's poison in the church. Resentfulness, this is weird how it works. Resentfulness gets pointed toward other people. So so you're resentful towards somebody else, but it comes at your own expense. So you're angry at that person, but the more you hold on to bitterness, the more it eats you away on the inside. It degrades your heart. It, It warps your perception. Your attitude becomes mangled. You cannot separate your feelings from the truth and you become calloused. It's dangerous. Bitterness is antithetical towards gospel ministry. It's like cancer that kills community and mission. It is the opposite of building the church up. It is the opposite of loving the bride of Christ. Now, this is why Paul, if you keep reading further down in Ephesians chapter four, verse 31, he actually puts his finger on this pulse. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Rather be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, John could have had this envy, this bitterness, this resentment that just ate away at him. But he was able to have a kingdom Minds at kingdom perspective. Now, Christian, let me ask you are you fighting against the flesh? Are you putting your foot on the throat of your sin, of your bitterness, of your envy? If you don't, that thing will destroy you. Not just destroy you, your community, your missional impact. In order for us to do gospel, commun- gospel mission together, for the long haul, we must be vigilant against the sins of bitterness and envy. Because we're not just fighting against those things, we're fighting for something. We're fighting for unity, fighting for brotherhood, fighting for the glory of Christ to be made known. Number four, transformative faith is the goal of gospel ministry, truth is the means. Transformative faith is the goal of gospel ministry. Truth is the means. In gospel ministry, we deal with the folly of sinners and their brokenness, us, myself, yours included. If you know, you know. If you've been in initial community, you know, okay? Sin makes us do stupid stuff. And Ephesians 4.13 tells us that it's right for us 
to want to see people built up, to mature in the faith, to become wise. But oftentimes in pursuit of that, um, our motives for wanting that maturity get warped. So um, I might want for my, my brother, my neighbor, um, my friend to, to grow up and to mature. But the reason why I want them to grow up and mature because it's just too exhausting for me to keep up with all of their silliness. I'm preaching to myself here. You become irritated, feel inconvenienced, annoyed, and so you're tempted to take shortcuts. You want to address the fruit of the problem, not the root of the problem. You want to get into the behavior modification. Listen, guy, if you just stop doing this, it'll be good for you, but it'll be good for me too. If you just change your, your actions, if you change your behavior, and as we look at behavior modification, as that's the thing, what we do is we ignore the heart. The heart is the epicenter of the human life. Everything flows from the heart. If you really want to change behavior, you got to get to the heart. And so we have to realize in order to do good gospel ministry, people cannot act themselves right into the kingdom of heaven. And maybe you need to know that. You can't act yourself right into the kingdom of God. This is made clear in verse 36. In verse 36, it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The goal of gospel ministry is faith. That's the whole, the singular point of John's gospel is to believe, right? I'm saying these things so that you would see, that you would believe, and that you would have life. The only way to have life is by believing in the Son of God. But this faith that John is aiming for, this is really important. We have to see this, Christians. The life of faith that John is aiming for is not just a, an, a theological agreement of yes, I consent to that. The kind of faith that John is aiming for is a faith that is marked by submission to Jesus Christ in all areas of life. This is what you see here. In verse 36, you see, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, you gotta believe in the Son. Now, the juxtaposition, the opposite, flip side of that is those who do not believe, but he doesn't say those who don't believe, it's those whoever does not obey the Son. And so John, in his eyes, that, that there's a link between faith and obedience. That true faith cannot, true faith is not void of obedience, of, of actually um, expressing your faith through works. Now, we don't get to faith by our works, but works are a product of genuine faith. Now, the Apostle Paul makes this clear in his, um, in his magnum opus of Romans. He begins and ends his incredible work by talking about the obedience of faith. Bookmark, book ends on this incredible book. He's talking about the obedience of faith. This is what kind of faith the gospel produces. It means that the aim of gospel ministry is not just getting people to agree with that Jesus is the son of God who dies on a cross. The goal of gospel ministry is wanting to see people believe in that and have their life transformed by that. It's transformative faith that both saves people from their futility, from their sins, and sanctifies them, this progressive sanctification that takes place throughout their life. That their hearts, their lives become transformed. 
But we must also see that the means to this kind of faith, this transformative faith, is the truth. It's the true truth of the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Now, there's a thread here. Um, John 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh. Okay, so who's that? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. The word of God became flesh. Okay, then let's jump to this. Um, he says in verse 34, God is true. Okay, so if God is true and God became flesh, um, the true word of God, the true flesh of Christ. Now, and then God, he sends the word of God, the true word of God, to utter the words of God, which are truth. So you see this whole thing revolves around truth. It revolves around Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It revolves around the words of truth that Jesus speaks. This is why Ephesians 4.15 says that, that the way Christians mature, not just by the, the way Christians get, people get saved, which is true, that the proclamation, faith comes by hearing, but the way Christians mature is by speaking the truth in love. We cannot expect to see transforming faith without the presence of the true truth. I want to dive into that. Don't have time. Number five. Number five. Theology matters in gospel ministry. You probably missed this, but in the opening verses here, in verse 25, this passage opens with a theological debate. There's a Jew and some of John the Baptist's disciples, and they're, they're discussing, debating the idea of purification. Now, it might seem like a, just a passive thing to talk about. Like, why are they... That's silly that it would be included in this. Well, no, it's not. Because perhaps the main theme up to this point in John's gospel is the concept of purification. The idea of how do I become cleansed? And on one hand, you've got John the Baptist guys who are, are committed to holding on to God's word, specifically the Old Testament, of what it looks like to be cleansed, to be purified. And then you have a Jew who holds on to the customs and the ideas of man. This is what the two rival ideas are. This is what the debate is about. Is it the word of God or is it the opinions of man? It's ultimately a debate about what is true and what is false. Now, if gospel ministry, the way gospel ministry advances through the proclamation of truth, then we should not be surprised at all that Satan's MO is to come in and to undermine, to twist, to, to distort the truth, which means that as we're doing the gospel ministry of pro proclaiming the truth, we should expect rivals to the truth. We should expect combating ideas of what's true truth and what's false truth or straight up lies. And the way that we must combat Satan's schemes, in fact, the only way that we can, the only way that we can dismiss his lies is by knowing the truth. By knowing the truth. By knowing Jesus. By knowing the things that he has said. Which means, and, and here's, is, this means that you must become a theologian. A lot of people hear the word theology, it sounds cold and stuffy and work reserved for only the most smartest of the peoples in the world. But theology just means the study of God. It just means 
coming to know God for who he really is. Not a man-made invention, not, not the ideas of man about who God is, but who God is as he has revealed himself. And there is nothing more, more, more worthwhile in life than knowing God. So let me ask you, Christian, are you taking the time to study God? Are you taking time to read his word? Are you taking time to read books that are just a little bit past your pay grade? Challenge your mind, your intellect, so that you can know the deep things of God. Now, the reason why theology matters so much, there's several reasons. Let me give a quick few. First, ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas carry bad consequences. Right, if we have bad theology, it's going to cause this domino effect. And you can see this in mainline denominations in North America right now, taking effect. Bad ideas have consequences, and many of these churches are dying up and evaporating. Why? They've, they've abandoned the truth. They've abandoned studying God for who he really is, and instead they've built up a God in their own image. This means that theology is always practical. Theology has a way of working itself out into the everyday stuff of life. You might wonder, what does eschatology have to do with anything? A lot. A lot. The way that you see how the world ends is going to affect how you live day to day. That stuff matters. And the more we view God rightly, the more our perceptions of God and the world that we're in and ourselves change to line up with reality, what, what Francis Schaeffer calls true reality. It's going to change the way that you live, the way that you view the world. And the, one of the best ways for a church to become ruined is to forsake the study of theology to abandon the study of the scriptures. Now, another reason is, the, in order for us to be um, gospel proclaimers, heralds of the gospel, right, to do evangelism well in, in this post-Christian, secularized world, in order to do, a lot of times, in order to do evangelism effectively requires the ability to dismantle other people's faulty worldviews and the lies that they're believing in order to present the truth of Christ to them. And so in order to, to do this well, if we want to be good missionaries, if we want to engage people who are far from God and present to them the good news of Christ, then we need to know the truth in order to do that. Same applies for if you want to, if you want to uh, in community on mission, applying the gospel to people's lives, you have to know the truth in order to disciple people. Right? The truth is necessary. But the third thing that fits in all of this stuff is that the truth the true truth, good theology, brings stability. That's one of the aims here of Ephesians chapter 4. When, when the Apostle Paul is talking about um, that we no longer be like children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine. So he's saying that there are, there are false doctrines out there in the church that are circulating. Not only that, there are lies of the culture that are circulating. How are you going to not get tossed around by these things unless you have the word of God to anchor you in the storm? We must be committed to the truth. We must pursue good theology if we are going to have a faithful and long gospel ministry. And sixth, bring it home, baby. This one feels pretty real. Gospel ministry 
is hard and painful work. Gospel ministry is hard and painful work, but it is littered with joy. John the Baptist's ministry starts in obscurity. It's a weird dude out on the river. And his ministry ends in prison, and then his head is chopped off and put on a platter. John the Baptist went head-to-head with some of the most powerful men, religious men of his day. John the Baptist dealt with the scoffing and mockery, the criticism. John the Baptist did not have an easy ministry. It was littered with controversy. I'm sure, I can only imagine that at some points he experienced doubts. He's like, am I really doing the right thing? (laughs) Am I sure that God called me to this? But as hard as his ministry was, as painful as it got, John the Baptist was filled with joy. John the Baptist was filled with joy. This is, I think this is the most beautiful part of this whole passage. If you jump back to John 4, let me show you. Or John 3, I'm sorry. He says, um, look at verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's talking about the bridegroom is Jesus. Jesus, the bridegroom, has the bride, the church. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the groom, or the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's Voice. See, John didn't bite into the envy, the bitterness, those things that could have come along. John was so delighted to see Jesus come into the world. John was happy that before his eyes, the Messiah that had been prophesied for for centuries and centuries was there, right there. He had carried the baton through this part of the race. He had served his role. And he had passed it off now to Jesus. And check this out. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. I don't think we understand what it looks like. I, I, actually, that's not true. I think some of us do. What it looks like to go through the gauntlet. I mean, maybe you face cancer. Maybe you lost somebody in your family. Maybe betrayal, friendships. Uh, somebody leaves your mission community. All these things You go through the gauntlet and you still have joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, as Nehemiah says. John the Baptist rejoices because he realized he's the best man sitting up there at the front of the altar with the groom and Jesus looks at the bride and he is full of joy. And now... His joy is complete because the bride and groom have been wed. Now this this too should be a joy of ours. That when we see people come into the body of Christ, because God is grafting people in through the proclamation of the gospel, we see that there should be a great delight and joy in seeing new people find themselves within the family of God. That should be a continual source of joy for us. But the joy doesn't stop there. The joy doesn't stop there because we get to rejoice doubly in this. 
as ministers of the gospel, we, uh, proclaimers, heralds of the truth, we get to see people come in, but we also realize that we are part of the bride. That, that we are the ones that Christ laid down his life for. Keep reading in Ephesians 5. He laid down his life to sanctify her, to make her glorious, beautiful, without blemish or spot or wrinkle. That, that's, that's the kind of love, the husbandly love that God loves the church with. We get to rejoice doubly because not only are we uh, in our role as gospel ministers, we're functioning as, as the, the uh, best man or maid of honor or whatever, um, but we are, are also part of the, the bride of Christ. We are the ones that Jesus laid his life down. We are the ones that Jesus said, it's for the joy that's set before me, right? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the Christ. Jesus went through the gauntlet why? Because joy. Because joy. And we rejoice now because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is given freely to those who believe in the Son. They find eternal life. The reality is gospel ministry is hard and painful, but friends, it is worth it. It is worth it. Because Eventually, the grief will give way to glory. This is, this is the perspective the Apostle Paul has as he writes Ephesians, or excuse me, Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He says, the stuff that we're in right now, the hardships we face right now, there is a, a deeper glory, a deeper joy, a mo more profound joy than you could ever imagine. It's gonna be so profound that all this stuff is gonna seem insignificant. And we right now get to access that joy. I mean, there, there's a great joy that awaits for us. It's, there's a joy on the other side as we pick up our cross and follow him, as we lay our lives down for our wives and our children, as we, as we do gospel ministry, which is picking up the cross to follow Jesus. There's joy in that. But there's a great joy to come. John the Baptist ends, his life ends in blood, Hardship, decapitated. But in the resurrection, John will be restored. In the resurrection, your nicks and scrapes and bruises and pains will be restored. In the resurrection, John gets his head back. In the resurrection, all of your aches and pains. I mean, Jesus still has scars to show us that he endured these things. But there's joy that outpaces what we face now. Brothers and sisters, faithful ministers of the gospel, heralds of the good news, disciple makers, missionaries, servants, learners, may the Lord strengthen you. May the Lord give you a joy that surpasses any kind of explanation. And would he strengthen you that you might be a faithful gospel laborer, There is a ripe harvest. The world is perishing and people are looking for joy. May we stand in the gap as heralds of the good news and proclaim the joy that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your kindness towards us. We do not deserve it at all. 
And being called into your bride is a glorious and joyful calling. I pray that, I pray that more than ever that that would be demonstrated in our lives, that the joy would just ooze out of us. I pray that you give us the strength to keep going one foot in front of the other, faithfully walking with you, putting the flesh to death, fighting for unity, fighting for brotherhood, fighting um, not against one another, but fighting for the truth. Lord, and would the truth prevail? We ask that you would work in us and through us for your glory, for the good and the joy of all people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 